This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The school bell is a familiar sound for many children, and with Colorado schools back in session, a national conversation about bathroom rights continues. Boulder Valley School District knows where it falls on the issue. The U.S. Department of Education and Justice noted its policies supporting transgender students as a national example. I spoke with Boulder Valley Superintendent Bruce Messenger along with Michael Clymer. He graduated from Boulder's New Vista High School and was a champion for LGBTQ inclusion there. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Michael, you attended Boulder Valley schools from a young age, and you came out in the eighth grade. You're not transgender, but in high school, you were president of Alliance. That's a student group where queer and allied youth work together. Can you take me into the classroom and describe the culture at New Vista? We as a school had a very intense school-wide equity program where we as students learned about uh, racism or sexism, classism, homophobia, all that stuff on a yearly basis. We would focus on three different isms um, and have really intense, deep, hard discussions with each other and with the staff and with the administrators and really learn together about the world and about people who are different from us and about respect. And so I think having that curriculum in place at New Vista truly set a baseline for the culture. Did that happen at other schools where it was such a a non-traditional way of educating students? So New Vista is a unique learning environment, and what Michael's described is, is, uh, in my view, very accurate and uh, creates a learning community that is... um, where there is that level of respect and informality and relationships. So I would say that is not uh, prevalent in all of our schools, but I will say that this notion of breaking down barriers, having honest conversations, um, having staff, students, and families be who they are and feel welcome is certainly a goal we have for all of our schools. We had hoped that a transgender student would be able to join us and give their perspective, but unfortunately scheduling conflicts prevented it. So, Michael, when speaking with your transgender peers, what do they say about high school? Are they comfortable being themselves? I mean, I think high school is a tough time for any student, regardless of your identity. However, I think at New Vista, the culture is to the point that it is where they felt very welcome. And I think queer students in general feel very welcome at New Vista, be it trans queer students or non-trans queer students. Um, I knew trans students in high school who were out and talked about their transness on a daily level or on a daily basis and really were very open about it. And I knew trans students who, yes, they might have been out, but they didn't talk about it as much or it wasn't something that they liked to discuss. And I don't think it's going to be across the board the same for every single student, regardless of identity. Everyone's going to move through high school differently and, and have their own path. But I think at New Vista, for sure, it was never a question of if they were welcome, it's, it's how we could welcome them, it's how we could make sure that they were as safe and as welcome as possible. And Boulder Valley Schools released a formal policy to support students who are transgender in 2012. Uh, Bruce, was there an incident that motivated putting that in place? Uh, did a family member or, or a student speak up? We've had policy in place for a number of years, and, and it has um, been refined. It has been uh, adjusted over time. And I would say not a single incident. I would say as our school communities became more familiar with the needs of students and their families, then we looked to policy, which is sort of our major guidance about are we creating a, a setting, an expectation, a support system where all students, regardless of their unique characteristics or needs, and staff can be both welcomed and successful. And 
Um, but the first order of business is to have policy into place, to set expectations from our elected board of education, and then work to make sure that uh, what goes on in the schools actually reflect that. And obviously, we work from preschool through high school, so that looks really different depending on uh, you know the unique needs and the nature of the students that we serve. And so those policies which you established in 2012, they've been noticed on a national scale. Guidance for schools from the U.S. Departments of Education and Justice came out in May. It highlights a variety of policies from school districts around the country, and it cited Boulder Valley schools twice. Why do you think your district stood out on this on a national scale? I think the motivation of the department was to be able to hold up not only model policy, but practices that accompany that. And we've worked hard to provide professional development for our uh, employees, our educators, and other employees so that um, we gain a deeper understanding of what's uh, what the needs are of the students and their families and be as responsive as we can to be that. I will just tell you, you know, with almost 5,000 employees, that's no small task. And uh, we work hard at it. And I think uh, having model policy, model practices – our, I mean, we certainly look to that when we're trying to get work done. We look to other school districts. And so our uh, commitment was to share that with other school districts and hope that it may be helpful to not only districts in the state of Colorado and beyond. Well, Michael, how do you think these policies that were introduced affect a student's learning? I think with a larger organization such as a school district, policy is always the first step and it's never the last. Um, and so I think the policy that was implemented in 2012 was a top-down attempt to make a larger cultural shift. While that cultural shift hasn't been felt in every single school, like New Vista, there wasn't a huge change between 2011 and 2012 culturally. I think the policy is in place so that teachers and educators and staff members can get the education um, and the professional development so that they can be part of implementing a larger paradigm shift within the schools. And I think that is then what ultimately leads to students feeling it in the classroom um, on a daily, minute level, where you're discussing queer topics in the classroom, you're discussing transness in the classroom, even if it's a math class um, and you have a word problem, maybe the problem discusses a non-heterosexual couple or a trans person instead of a normally or normal cis person. Ultimately, it is my belief that if the environment isn't welcoming and safe uh, and secure for any of us, then uh, getting to the learning part is going to be really difficult. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Boulder Valley School District Superintendent Bruce Messenger and former student 19-year-old Michael Clymer. The district's policies for students who are transgender have been recognized on a national scale. Uh, Bruce, the Human Rights Campaign also praised your district as a leader in transgender inclusion. We spoke with a representative there. She said one of the things she was particularly impressed by was including a, quote, gender nonconforming option in student databases. What does that mean and why is it important? So traditionally, students would uh, declare their gender uh, as a part of uh, registration or enrollment in school. And um, over the years, we've moved from paper pencil to automated systems and software systems, student management systems. And so um, oftentimes what we have found is that systems don't keep up with changing, uh, changing society. And so We've worked the last two years uh, so that we both collect and capture the data in response to uh, how the student identifies. So over 31,000 students will come back and uh, start school this fall. So 
you know, how we maintain those records, how students can be represented in those records, and how families prefer that, how students prefer that, to create that as an option. Uh, we weren't there a few years ago, and so it was really students who talked to us and said, that's impactful to us when we are new to a class and uh, are we introduce ourselves or we are introduced. Um, this aspect of the data reporting and collection is important. You say the systems are older and have taken some time to bring up to speed, but what about some of the staff and administration and teachers? I'm sure it must be a learning curve to bring them up to speed as well. Absolutely. We've been working with uh, CU Boulder. The university has been very helpful. The College of Education and Queer Endeavor we is the organization we've been working with. They have worked alongside us in creating a training model for educators. Um, so we've been working um, the last couple of years to provide that training and support. And again, not just for classroom teachers, bus drivers, food service workers, because obviously the students engage with all of the adults that work in the system. And you're absolutely right. You know, many of us who grew up in a different day, uh, you know, we have learning around this. We need to gain a deeper understanding. And so, uh, but by working in a school district that holds this as a high ideal, uh, then it creates an environment where uh, even when we don't do it well and we don't do it right, uh, we're learning together so we can get better with it over time. And I will just say we're it, it is a, a process and we're evolving in it. And parents have interest in this as well because they too find themselves in that situation, not just parents of students who are trans, but all parents are interested in this because they too want to gain the deeper understanding. So as we push this out further, it's creating opportunities for community meetings, school meetings, so parents can you know have a deeper understanding of these issues as well. It's very important work. But how consistent is this training? Is it once a month, once a year, when something comes up? Is every school uh, learning the same curriculum at the same time? Well, certainly across the board for all schools, all employees, it is more of an event than uh, continuous, a little bit different than what Michael described at New Vista. But uh, certainly to get started, it was sort of wall to wall, uh, you know, get out to all the schools. And then what we identified is a leadership team in each of our school settings or work settings that would take lead along with the school administrator um, to continue the conversations, continue the training so that as students enroll or um you know, they work with trans issues that they are prepared to embrace and work uh, with the families. Uh, but the reality is, and the reality is, that when there are families and students specifically that they're working with, then obviously that's going to be more intense and might not be the whole staff, but certainly the staff members that are working directly with the students and the families. So, you know, again, it, it looks different between each of our schools, but uh, we didn't want to leave it to chance and we didn't want to leave it to just families and students that were particularly engaged in the school, but really uh, gained that depth of understanding across the district. We're talking with Bruce Messenger, Boulder Valley School District Superintendent, and Michael Clymer, a recent graduate of the district. Let's take a break. When we come back, more on how Boulder Valley is supporting its transgender students. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation with Bruce Messenger, Boulder Valley Superintendent, and Michael Clymer, a graduate of the district. The U.S. Departments of Education and Justice have cited the district's culture supporting transgender students as a national example. I want to touch on the bathroom rights issue. North Carolina's governor signed a controversial bathroom bill in March. It barred cities from allowing transgender people to use the bathroom that aligns with the gender they identify as. North Carolina House Speaker Republican Tim Moore called it a privacy issue, as well as a security risk of sexual predators. How do you respond? 
So we've obviously followed that really closely and our policy and practice is that uh, students can use the uh, restroom um, that they identify, the gender they identify. And we, and that in combination that we have, uh, we happen to be also um, passed a major bond issue in our school district uh, two years ago. So we're working on every school <laughs> or we will be soon doing reconstruction work. And so we're able to put in more individual restrooms, um, that are non-gender or all gender, and so that both adults and students can access a restroom where they have privacy, um, regardless of their uh, gender, so that um, they have that privacy. And so it's a combination of things. Again, this is an area that's pretty sensitive uh, to uh, families and students. And what we have found, our experience in Boulder Valley, is that the students are you know, very uh, understanding of this and very supportive of one another and really uh, manage it quite well. And and our parents have been very supportive of that. It's, again, I would say it's a journey uh, because of, you know, having adequate access, numbers of restrooms and locker rooms. Um, You know, what I think all of us want and value is privacy when we want it and need it. And so can we accommodate that for students, again, whether they're young children or high school level? Michael, is that what you're hearing uh, in the schools with your friends, that they want privacy? Or is it a different conversation they're having? I mean, I think privacy is always something that's part of the conversation. But I think when uh, state senators in North Carolina call it a privacy issue, they're blatant. They're just blatantly being transphobic because it isn't. It isn't a privacy issue. Um, it's a basic human right to be able to pee. To be very, very frank, that's what it is, and it's people restricting that right for trans people because they are scared of them, or they don't understand them, or they hate them. So for me, I think that's what the bathroom issue comes down to: is is are we going to let everyone pee, or are we going to let only certain people pee? And that's a, a very succinct argument, Michael. But creating a more welcoming physical environment for transgender students, how far does that go? Does it mean private locker rooms for trans? gender or gender nonconforming students? Well, certainly uh, looking at all uh, elements of the school, uh, not just the school building, obviously that's some of what we're talking about right now, but also the nature of the activities, the kinds of opportunities, really um, not being, um, you know, sorting or deciding around gender when it's not necessary. And I think traditionally we view just gender to make decisions when it really wasn't necessary at all. And so uh, regardless of the gender or non-gender or all gender, I think that some of the learning that we've gained is how to open that up so that uh, students feel welcome uh, regardless of their gender identification. But locker rooms are a major issue for student activities because what I have discovered is that many students simply uh, don't access them because of some of these issues. So we're trying to create environments where students can uh, feel comfortable in facilities and have access to them. And if they want more or less privacy, they have the ability to do that. But again, as Michael described, really just there are some basic needs and functions that we all have. And um, we just need to be thoughtful about where social norms either uh, inhibit that access or create environments that don't feel safe or welcoming. And again, uh, as an educator, I've been doing this a long time, uh, and also as a parent, we have the opportunity while students are young and developing to create both understandings but also environments where it is safe and secure so that as we transition into life outside of schools, our students are prepared for that and hopefully society is ready to receive them. Major LGBTQ support groups uh, like PFLAG and uh, Human Rights Campaign have said that your policies are, are quite good in this realm. However, last year, a Boulder Valley parent expressed concern that the district needed to do more to support transgender mm-hmm. students. And she filed a federal civil rights complaint over the issue. 
how do you ensure the policies you've laid out get utilized in your schools? So all policies, I mean, it's our responsibility, both as administration and employees, part of our agreement to work in the Boulder Valley School District is that we will follow policy, and that's an expectation of our performance. And so that's where we start. And in the event where our policy isn't adequate, then that's an, an issue we take to our governing body to work on the policy, where we, if the policy is adequate and we're simply not following it or not following it in a robust way, then that becomes a supervision issue or maybe a training issue or a support issue or all of those things. And in that particular case that you're describing, it was probably all of those. We were still uh, kind of on an upward curve of doing the training and support, uh, looking at our own curriculum materials, looking at um, you know, support for the family. And um, we're working closely in this case with this family and, and, you know, trying to gain a deeper understanding of their needs and also balancing the needs of all the other students and families in those school settings. And so, you know, that's just the nature of our work is to try to find that balance and continue to get better with it over time. The parent who filed the civil rights suit says the school just wasn't prepared. She says in one instance, school officials called her child a daughter, even though the parent made clear in an application that her child was genderqueer. Michael, how do you help teachers and staff navigate which identifier to use? Is there a rule of thumb that they can use? Maybe because many of them see it as new territory. When it comes to learning, we're always going to make mistakes. And I think it's a process of not letting those mistakes shut you down and stop you from continuing your learning, but it's a learn from your mistakes. So I think there's not any one identifier or any one term that I I tell teachers to go with. It's more about listening to students, I think. And so I think one of the things that I've seen in classrooms is that on the first day of class, almost every single teacher will will call out student names um, from a roster. And so I think what's great is that... um, when that's happening, it's allowing students to dictate if they go by a different name that's not within the system, or if they use pronouns that don't seem to match their given name. Um, really, that's what I advocate for, is like letting the students dictate that conversation on the first day. And so I think that's when it's really important to have very strong student-staff relationships so that the student can go up and feel like they can talk to the staff member or they can talk to the teacher and feel safe saying, hi, like, I'd, I'd prefer to use a different name or if you make sure that you call me by the use the correct pronouns when addressing me. Um, and I think pronouns is is a big part of the issue. And I think a lot of teachers are struggling with pronouns. I know that I've had a lot of conversations with um, language arts and English teachers specifically around they, them pronouns, singular they, them pronouns, um, because it doesn't really work with the English language. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people struggle with that. And Bruce, are, are you taking some of that to heart and adding it to the curriculum that you're teaching students about this or is it already there? No, I think what Michael describes is right. Is that it's um, it's uh, we're in process. It's a it's a conversation. It's gaining an understanding. And I just want to reinforce what I heard him say also about student voice, um, so that uh, on this topic and lots of topics is really creating a learning environment, a school environment that um, is is welcoming and supportive. And also there's a consistently a place for student voice, so that. You know, if we just let go a bit and uh, not be quite so controlling and um, let uh, students have voice and create environments where they're comfortable with voice and then and then we listen to that, we engage with it. Sometimes if we just create an environment where we listen to one another, have conversations and gain a deeper understanding, that almost becomes the curriculum. Thanks to the both of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bruce Messenger is Boulder Valley School District Superintendent. Michael Clymer graduated from New Vista High School in South Boulder and was a champion for LGBT inclusion there. 
Since we spoke, news broke that a federal judge in Texas blocked, at least for now, the Obama administration's guidance that schools should let transgender students use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity. NPR reported that a lawsuit filed by nearly a dozen states said that the White House directive would make schools, quote, laboratories for a massive social experiment. We reached back out to Superintendent Messenger to get his response. He said Boulder Valley will continue to follow and refine its own policy. I've read some news accounts of this, and um, I think it's a really strong reaction and probably does not fully represent all the schools that will be impacted by this decision. So my hope would be is that we can get to a more moderate position on this and um, have schools and school districts work within their communities. I just have to assume that uh, folks will get there eventually, um, but that they're in a different place right now. And while this issue remains contentious, Superintendent Messenger added that his hope is to create a safe environment without compromising privacy. Even in our community, understandably, there are folks that see this in different ways, and it's part of the educational process. Just ahead, a discussion on Colorado and vaccine use. This is Colorado Matters from CPRU's. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a lot of research out there that says childhood vaccines are generally low risk and have big public health benefits. In Colorado, many parents still choose to delay vaccinations or skip them altogether. The state has one of the highest under-vaccination rates in the country. Author Jennifer Reich explores why in her new book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. Reich is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She joins my colleague, Andrew Dukakis. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. You decided to follow a bunch of families that had decided not to vaccinate their kids. What prompted you to do that? The questions I'm most interested in my research and teaching are always about how do families make sense of law in their daily lives. And when I was thinking about where are families every day making hard choices, vaccines stood out to me as one of those moments. And I started thinking about this about over a decade ago um, as a way of really making sense of the strategies parents adopt and how they interact with doctors, with school systems, and with other bureaucracies that they encounter. And What did you find? What makes parents choose to forego vaccines in the face of a lot of medical evidence that they're safe and effective? I think, you know, both of us are parents, and I think a lot of the parents out there can recognize that whenever you make a choice, commission is always harder than omission, right? The emotional experience of making an active choice is hard. And what I found in my research in talking to dozens of parents, uh, and along with pediatricians and lawyers and other players in the story, is that at, at the core, parents identify themselves as experts on their own children. They know their children, and they're encouraged to know their children. And because they see themselves as experts, they feel they're really better qualified to make choices about healthcare than are, say, pediatricians they may only see for 10 or 15 minutes at a visit, or a national advisory panel of people they've never seen and through a process of safety insurance that they don't really understand. And so they really claim that kind of expertise. What is the risk of being adversely affected by a vaccine? In general, the risks are very, very low. And there's lots of great data online um, at the American Academy of Pediatrics site, the CDC, um, will we'll give you specifics on those kinds of questions. I think the more interesting question is, what is it exactly that parents fear? Mm-hmm. So in the more immediate, there are adverse reactions of fevers, um, 
and agitation of skin at the injection site. But what parents really fear is much broader, and there's really no information that can be reassuring to them. They might fear long-term health consequences, the development of an autoimmune disease that might not show up for 20 or 30 years. They don't uh, feel necessarily secure that the long-term story of vaccine safety as it relates to the immune system is really clear. And they're driven by questions about why we're seeing nationally a rise in autoimmune diseases, an increase in things like multiple sclerosis or lupus or type 1 diabetes in adults. And they're asking questions about what do we understand about the immune system? Are vaccines really safe as it relates to that? Are they really as good as uh, as are they really as good as getting a disease for causing long-term immunity? Are they really natural? And that's a powerful frame for parents. And and as they sort of weigh from their own sense of expertise the value of the risks and the benefits, they often find that they don't believe the necessity justifies what they perceive as a risk. What about the concern about preservatives and vaccines like uh, containing mercury and other perhaps toxic substances? The conversations about thimerosal or mercury, um, I think, were really important historically to think about. And they really emerged in the U.S. out of a larger conversation about the different kinds of mercury and what kinds of methylmercury, which is different than the preservative that was formerly used in vaccines. But what are the safety levels from seafood for children? How do we understand the accumulations of metals in general? And that really drove questions. Now, there's been no science to say that those have long-term bad health outcomes. But professional organizations, along with uh, vaccine manufacturers, chose to remove their thimerosal from vaccines um, the last one was flu vaccine, and it came out last year, I think. Um, but there's now new questions about, you know, what do we do with preservatives? I should say preservatives are necessary in vaccines that have multi-use vials. So we have historically examples of um, infections that have resulted from syringes being dipped in the same jar without a preservative. And it's become really important. From a parent's perspective, though, it sounds like some something that sounds toxic being actively injected into their children's body, and that's concerning to them. Now, as we've talked about, this is a hot button, but a hot button issue for lots of people, including the medical community, which strongly recommends vaccines. And these parents uh, who believe uh, that at least a few vaccines aren't safe and want to protect their kids. And at the beginning of your book, you talk about an incident at Disneyland in 2014 in California that led to changes in vaccine laws there. Talk about that. So I think, you know, a lot of uh folks who are really critical of parents who opt not to vaccinate their kids. And I should just as an aside note that the families I'm interested in may not have opted out of all vaccines, but I'm really interested in the question by which parents determine that they don't want some or any and how they come to those choices. So a lot of folks who are critical of these parents argue that they're naive and they've never seen the power of infectious disease. So Disneyland was one of these moments where we saw a measles outbreak. Uh, the origin of the outbreak is still unknown. Measles is highly contagious. It uh, can linger in the room after an infected person has left for over two and a half hours. And from those initial infections at Disneyland, tourists then traveled home and um, is, and the disease spread as far as, as Canada and Mexico. And so we saw this as an example of how Waning immunity or missing immunity can really lead to outcomes that could be really serious for individuals. Part of that conversation then, which I also talk about in the book, is that those folks traveled then to homes and then healthcare providers and hospitals full of sick people, many of whom are immune compromised, introducing new kinds of risks to others in their communities. And how did that affect California's law? And so California was one of several states who proposed a law, uh, they're one of the few that passed one, um, really questioning how it is that parents can opt out. So as background, 
All states in the U.S. allow children who have a medical reason not to be immunized to opt out of requirements, and those requirements are only enforced in terms of attendance at schools or childcare settings. Another, um, all but two, and a medical reason to opt out would be having some immune deficiency or known complication that's likely to result from vaccination. And it's important that we have those because vaccines aren't perfect for everyone. Um, and the reason we talk about community immunity or herd level immunities is to protect those who really can't be immunized. What we have, though, um, before last year was another um, that all but two states before California changed their law allow parents to opt out for religious or philosophically held beliefs. And initially in the 1960s, when vaccine requirements were instituted in law, those were really aimed to accommodate Christian scientists. What we know is that they're much more broadly construed now and uh, and and open to broad interpretations of what's religious participation. And then before last year, we had about another 20 states that allowed parents to express a personal or philosophical held belief that, uh, that vi- vaccines would violate. California then, uh, on the heels of this outbreak and and facing situations of of cities that had as much as 50 percent of kids unvaccinated, opted to remove the ability to opt out based on religion or personal belief from their state law. So they only have a medical exemption. And that law went into effect as of July 1st. I should say in Colorado, the choice made here is to keep personal belief exemptions and religious exemptions. But the process by which parents have to claim a personal belief exemption became a little more rigorous and requires annual renewal. Which You have to existed. fill out a, a whole form to do it. You have to fill out a form every year now, which you didn't have to do before, or you can file it online. And when you look at the history of immunization, sum up their contribution to public health versus, you know, the dangers to some people. You know, the overall public health, what is their contribution met um, generally? So generally what we know is that measles had been eradicated from the U.S. before 2000 and it's back in ways that hadn't been seen before. Uh, we know we had better success with some vaccines than others. So, for example, the vaccine against pertussis uh, has had several different iterations. It's a hard, hard bacteria to vaccinate against um, and that we know that immunity wanes and requires increasing numbers of boosters. A lot of parents I interview specifically point to things like chicken pox as um, a sign that vaccines are overdone and unnecessary, remembering somehow more nostalgia than I do vaccines as some kind of rite of passage of childhood. And so we can see a varied story. Um, Most of the parents I speak to are pretty thrilled that we haven't seen polio in North America since 1979. But but then they question, do we really need to continue vaccinating against it? But when you sum up the overall contribution to the health Mm -hmm. in this country, um, the contributions of vaccines have been enormous, right? Absolutely. And there's lots of folks uh, in epidemiology who can point to changes in life expectancy um, and long-term safety. And and those things and, and in many ways we can ask the question, are vaccines undone by their own success? It's worth noting, however, that we vaccinate against an increasing number of diseases than when many of us were children. And that alone has also raised concerns about whether or not that's appropriate and whether or not there's too many vaccines offered too soon. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jennifer Reich about her book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines, about the debate over safety and regulations regarding vaccines. Let's talk about the demographics of parents who opt out. Um, Who are they? So what we should recognize is that when we talk about the vaccine rates in a state, we're looking at all the kids who are not fully vaccinated on the schedule recommended by a federal advisory board. We have uh, two groups then who fall into that camp. On the one side, what we see, and Colorado is a great case for looking at these differences, is we see parents whose kids are not fully vaccinated because they lack access to consistent care 
health insurance or, recess, or, or resources to ensure vaccination status, or they live in communities where uh, providers are having a hard time actually stocking vaccines, which we're seeing increasingly in rural communities. And those kids are referred to as the unvaccinated, and they tend to look really different than the families who are unvaccinated by choice. Those families tend to be lower income, more likely to have a single parent, more likely to have a child um, who's black, and to have a mother who may not have gone on past high school education. In contrast, when we talk about families who opt out by choice, they look really different. Those children are most likely to be white, have a college-educated mother, married parents, and a higher family income. And those really shape the differences in how we talk about public health, even as all those children may live in the same community or shop at the same grocery store. I mean, you point out that a, a wealthier parent really has the option perhaps to take off work if their child gets very sick, but a poorer parent may not have that option. When I first started this research, I was really struck by the absence of low-income parents who are actively choosing not to vaccinate in the same numbers. And everything in my heart said that there's no reason to believe that wealthier people would trust the government or trust science less. And so when I really thought about it, I spent some time talking to Medicaid providers, pediatricians who see publicly insured and privately insured patients, to ask what I was missing. And largely, I got the answer back was that for for pediatricians who treat low-income families, their patients have to go to work. They can't take time off without risking getting fired. And they have larger, more pressing issues, which might be housing or food security, safety for their children. And they and this is not their issue. For higher income families, um, most of the families I spoke to had um, a, a, mostly mothers, although not all mothers, um, had a parent who had job flexibility or didn't work out of the home for wages, who weren't afraid of a 21-day quarantine, for example, that could could result from an outbreak of a vaccine-preventable disease at their children's school. They weren't worried about their kids contracting, say, whooping cough, because they really trusted their ability to uh, to care for their child through that illness and to make sure they recovered. And so in many ways, that kind of resource, I think, shapes that decision. We also know that higher-income families are less likely to be um, hassled by government officials, less likely to be investigated by Child Protective Services for things like non-vaccination. Uh, we're, we're less likely to see that kind of intervention in high-income families' lives. And so in general, they are provided more um, more degrees of freedom in many ways that their resources buffer them from. And as a parent, you vaccinate your children. I vaccinate my children along with uh, this schedule that's recommended, and I do so for a couple of reasons. I'm compelled that there's some risk in even delaying vaccines. Many of the vaccines that are recommended for very young children emotionally feel hard to give to a baby. And at the same time, those diseases are most devastating for a baby. So while older children might do okay with whooping cough, uh, 50% of of children under the age of one are going to be hospitalized for that same disease and many die every year. So that was compelling on an individual level. But I also live in a family of folks who have immune disease, um, who are um, who had a transplant or who have a disease that's affected their immune system significantly. And I've come to believe that my children can absorb minimal risk to protect those in their communities and in their family who are most vulnerable. And that's a choice we can make that I, I feel good about. And I just want to point out um, this talk about this link to autism, which came up uh, last year in a Republican presidential debate. Um Trump alluded to to the fact that there was a link. And just briefly, you know, does that exist? Is there a link between autism and vaccinations? Uh, There's 
uh, been so many powerful studies of uh, looking at national healthcare systems, the relationship between vaccines or thimerosal and the rise of autism. What we know is that rates of autism are rising exponentially in a ways that rates of vaccine are not. And so there's lots of good reasons to sh- that demonstrate that they're not causally linked. I know for parents whose children are suffering from something, uh, some autism spectrum disorder, it's an unsatisfying answer. And there's not a lot of great or better answers available to them. And so I understand um, the way that this story continues to resonate for them. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jennifer Reich is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's the author of Calling the Shots about why some parents choose to opt out of vaccines. Just ahead, six-word stories on race. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Race has become a central topic this election year, with Hillary Clinton giving a half-hour speech on it last week. But a shorter message can be just as powerful. A few weeks ago, a poster board went up at the Denver Public Library's central branch in a hallway on the third floor. It's since been filled with messages like this one. Many colors inside only white outside, and a well-spoken black man, etc. It's called the Race Card Project, started by NPR's Michelle Norris, and this fall it's expanding to other library branches in Denver. Robin Philipsack is a reference librarian. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Nathan. So Michelle Norris, former NPR host, explained this project in 2013 to Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep. She said it's a place for people to talk about race and cultural identity in only six words. There is this urban legend that Ernest Hemingway threw down the gauntlet and challenged other writers to tell an interesting story and said, if you were a writer worth your salt, you could do it in only six words. And his six words, to prove his point, were baby shoes for sale, never worn. Mm. What you see overall is a lot of candor. People expressing in six words the kinds of things that you don't generally hear in public or polite conversation that, Steve, you frankly don't hear in a studio like this. So she collects these mini essays on actual postcards, and she hands them out through Twitter and through her website. At the library, what kind of response have you gotten? Is there an appetite for conversations about race? Yes, absolutely. We've had the display up for about um, a month now. We've had over 100 responses, and people are really enthusiastic about about sharing their stories. Um, I will say sometimes people haven't uh, adhered to the six-word convention, and I'm fine with that because people really have a lot to say around this topic. Well, let's hear from someone who participated. Uh, Renesti Rusli was born in Indonesia and moved to Colorado as a toddler, and now she's in college. I wrote, actually, uh, it's one identity. I have many. I guess when we talk about race... It's really easy to get caught up in the idea that it's a super defining quality. Uh, But when I think about myself, there's other kind of like identity words that I think describe myself a lot better than simply being Indonesian or Asian. And you got two other similar responses, quote, skin color does not define me and people transcend simplistic categories. Let's evolve. When you look at the responses you're getting, do you see trends that stand out? Yeah, I think people certainly want to feel that um, they're good people. They're they're pulling from their heart, and they you know they they want to see progress on on these sorts of issues. Um, and then there there are the really honest and sad ones that are you know where you get a story, you get an insight into someone who's you know lived with with racism and 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 lived with um, 
you know, being recognized for their identity instead of, like Renesti said, uh, their value as a person. And do you find some of these really raw? Have you ever watched someone actually write them out and, and post them on, on the board? Yeah, there's one that um, I, I it didn't follow the six-word convention, but uh, it was – I was called an N-word today, and I turned around and said, God bless you. It was just you know, hard to, hard to read, hard to think about, but it's out there, and people want to share that sort of you know, story and what's happening to them out there. I want to hear uh, another person who, who did this, uh, William Pointer uh, in Denver. Don't hate because you don't relate. If you don't understand the situation, don't hate people that are in that particular situation. He was really moved by the board, as you can hear in that. You you have uh, that board at the library. He's semi-retired, used to work at the Museum of Mm -hmm. Nature and Science, and says even decades ago, there was a lot of discussion about hiring people of different races. And he notes he was criticized for hiring too many people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, William and Renesti are in very different places Mm -hmm. in their lives. Do you find that the race card project has been able to bring people together to actually talk about what they're expressing on these cards? Yeah. One thing that stands out is the way that they look at libraries, uh, I think. The, the, Renesta expressed to me that she thought of the library as a place for going to, go, to get resources, yeah. but maybe the library was something more than that. Maybe it was a dialogue of ideas and potential for for collaboration within communities. So it's no longer just checking out books or, or, or going to do research. It's actually something, a connection with your community. That's right. What made you start this particularly right now? Well, I attended the Public Library Association conference uh, this year. The national conference was held here in Denver. Um, Social justice was on the table everywhere. That's what we were talking about. And we had one particular keynote speaker, Vernay Myers, who Mm -hmm. came. And she talked about going from well-meaning to well-doing and confronting your biases. So instead of, I'm a good person, I'm not racist, to make sure that your, your behaviors and your actions really reflected your values. And so that really empowered me as a librarian and and made me think, what can I do? I was familiar with the race card project. And I thought this is something that I can do to bring, you know, to deepen the conversation. And we have a clip of a TED talk by Verne Myers, uh, who you said you, you inspired you. She was talking about how to recognize implicit biases and told a story about being on a street with a friend of hers who's also a diversity consultant. And we were outside, it was late at night, and we were sort of wondering where we were going, we were lost, and I saw this person across the street, and I was thinking, oh, great black guy. She was saying, oh, you were going, yay, black guy? She said, I was going, black guy. She said, I feel so bad, I'm a diversity consultant, I did the black guy thing, I'm a woman of color, oh my God. And I said, you know what, you gotta realize I go way back with black guys. You know, biases are the stories we make up about people before we know who they actually are. That statement. Is that statement the heart of the project? Does it really get to get people to recognize their own biases? And what's at the heart of that? You know, what I really like about Renee Myers is she talks about her own biases as a black woman, you know, that she has her own. And so it really helps for me to reflect on what mine are and to be really truthful about that. How have the other librarians at the library uh, system reacted to this? 
it, there's been so much enthusiasm. We're already doing book groups, reads, you know, reading around race and social consciousness. Um, we're doing community engagement out in our libraries and and finding out what people want in their communities. So this was just a, a natural, you know, a natural piece to that. And now many of our librarians are going to replicate the program in branches around the city. So right now we have a, a display up, not just at Central Library, but one at the Park Hill branch. Mm-hmm. There's one going up at our university. City Hills branch very soon. One of our teen librarians is taking on the the project to work with the teens in his in his location. This is a supercharged time when it comes to race with the election and Black Lives Matter. Does that make it harder to have a meaningful conversation at the library or, or does it make it easier? Well, I, I think the library is a place where this sort of conversation can flourish because we are all about intellectual freedom and making sure, you know, the right for people to seek and, and receive information from all sorts of viewpoints without restriction. And being the public library, we really mean that. We are there for the public, which means absolutely everyone. We're a welcoming institution to everyone who walks into our doors. So you have a real cross-section of humanity in the public library. So it, it seems like a real natural fit. Have there been any negative comments because of this board going out? Absolutely. And, you know, I pointed back to what Michelle Norris said about that, about what she calls prickly or thorny comments. And we were allowing for that sort of frank discussion when it devolves into hate speech or to the profane, then we're we're removing comments. But we're keeping some of the real, you know, some of the real difficult ones up there. And because it needs to have this honest kind of context. Absolutely. What are... What are your six words? I'm assuming you have these. You see them every day and, and you look at many of them on this this uh, this poster board. Um, you know, what do we do? Yeah, I, I've written many of them over the past couple months. One I'll share with you. Libraries, safe spaces for enhancing understanding. Um it's, you know, for me, it's a personal mission to to use my my profession, my professional capacity to to move the needle forward. Robin, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. Robin Philipsack is a reference librarian at the Denver Public Library. She joined us to talk about the library's installation of the Race Card Project, started by former NPR host Michelle Norris. Find a link to Michelle's website at cprnews.org. And this is spreading to other Denver Public Library branches, including Park Hill, University Hills, and Schleselman. Is that right? And uh, before we leave, we want to leave with an open-air piece of music. It's been one year since Denver's Nathaniel Rateliff released his debut album with his rootsy soul band, The Night Sweats. And what a year it's been. And with viral late-night TV reports and non-shop touring around the world, Rateliff marked the album anniversary when the band returned home for a sold-out headlining performance at Red Rocks recently. We're going to leave you today with a song, Wasting Time, by Nathaniel Rateliff and The Night Sweats. Take a long walk home 
Rateliff and the Night Sweats. And that's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Our producers, Anthony Cotton, Andrew DeConcus, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Our audio engineers, John Zuko, Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, and Kara Schiff. The theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. You can also email us, click contact at the top of cprnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on the website. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ryan Warner joins us back tomorrow. Have a great day. Leave me all we had, all